Section 48 of Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Clevenger. Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant by Ulysses S. Grant. Chapter 48 commencement of the grand campaign general butler's position sheridan's first raid the armies were now all ready to move for the accomplishment of a single object they were acting as a unit so far as such a thing was possible over such a vast field lee with the capital of the confederacy was the main end to which all were working. Johnston, with Atlanta, was an important obstacle in the way of our accomplishing the result aimed at, and was, therefore, almost an independent objective. It was of less importance only because the capture of Johnston and his army would not produce so immediate and decisive a result in closing the rebellion as would the possession of richmond lee and his army all other troops were employed exclusively in support of these two movements this was the plan and i will now endeavor to give as concisely as i can the method of its execution outlining first the operations of minor detached but cooperative columns as stated before, Banks failed to accomplish what he had been sent to do on the Red River, and eliminated the use of 40,000 veterans whose cooperation in the Grand Campaign had been expected, 10,000 with Sherman and 30,000 against Mobile. Siegel's record is almost equally brief. He moved out, it is true, according to program, but just when i was hoping to hear of good work being done in the valley i received instead the following announcement from halleck siegel is in full retreat on strasburg he will do nothing but run never did anything else the enemy had intercepted him about newmarket and handled him roughly leaving him short six guns and some nine hundred men out of his six thousand the plan had been for an advance of Siegel's forces in two columns, though the one under his immediate command failed ingloriously, the other proved more fortunate. Under Crook and Averell, his western column advanced from the Gauley in West Virginia at the appointed time and with more happy results they reached the virginia and tennessee railroad at dublin and destroyed a depot of supplies besides tearing up several miles of road and burning the bridge over new river having accomplished this they recrossed the alleghanies to meadow bluffs and there awaited further orders butler embarked at fort monroe with all his command except the cavalry and some artillery which moved up the south bank of the james river his steamers moved first up chesapeake bay and york river as if threatening the rear of lee's army 
At midnight they turned back, and Butler, by daylight, was far up the James River. He seized City Point and Bermuda Hundred early in the day, without loss and, no doubt, very much to the surprise of the enemy. This was the accomplishment of the first step contemplated in my instructions to Butler. He was to act from here, looking to Richmond as his objective point. I had given him to understand that I should aim to fight Lee between the Rapidan and Richmond if he would stand, but should Lee fall back into Richmond, I would follow up and make a junction of the armies of the Potomac and the James on the James River. He was directed to secure a footing as far up the south side of the river as he could at as early a date as possible. Butler was in position by the 6th of May and had begun entrenching, and on the 7th he sent out his cavalry from Suffolk to cut the Weldon Railroad. He also sent out detachments to destroy the railroad between Petersburg and Richmond, but no great success attended these latter efforts. He made no great effort to establish himself on that road, and neglected to attack Petersburg, which was almost defenseless. About the 11th he advanced slowly until he reached the works at Drury's Bluff, about halfway between Bermuda Hundred and Richmond. In the meantime, Beauregard had been gathering reinforcements. On the 16th, he attacked Butler with great vigor, and with such success as to limit very materially the further usefulness of the Army of the James as a distinct factor in the campaign. I, afterward, ordered a portion of it to join the Army of the Potomac, leaving a sufficient force with Butler to man his works, hold securely the footing he had already gained, and maintain a threatening front toward the rear of the Confederate capital. The position which General Butler had chosen between the two rivers, the James and Appomattox, was one of great natural strength, one where a large area of ground might be thoroughly enclosed by means of a single entrenched line, and that a very short one in comparison with the extent of territory which it thoroughly protected his right was protected by the james river his left by the appomattox and his rear by their junction the two streams uniting nearby the bends of the two streams shortened the line that had been chosen for entrenchments while it increased the area which the line enclosed Previous to ordering any troops from Butler, I sent my chief engineer, General Barnard, from the Army of the Potomac to that of the James to inspect Butler's position and ascertain whether I could again safely make an order for General Butler's movement in cooperation with mine, now that I was getting so near Richmond, or, if I could not, whether his position was strong enough to justify me in withdrawing some of his troops and having them brought round by water to White House to join me and reinforce the Army of the Potomac. General Barnard reported the position very strong for defensive purposes and that I could do the latter with great security, but that General Butler could not move from where he was in cooperation 
to produce any effect. He said that the general occupied a place between the James and Appomattox rivers, which was of great strength, and where, with an inferior force, he could hold it for an indefinite length of time against a superior, but that he could do nothing offensively. I then asked him why Butler could not move out from his lines and push across the Richmond and Pittsburgh Railroad to the rear and on the south side of Richmond. He replied that it was impracticable because the enemy had substantially the same line across the neck of land that General Butler had. He then took out his pencil and drew a sketch of the locality, remarking that the position was like a bottle and that Butler's line of entrenchments across the neck represented the cork that the enemy had built an equally strong line immediately in front of him across the neck, and it was therefore as if Butler was in a bottle. He was perfectly safe against an attack, but, as Barnard expressed it, the enemy had corked the bottle, and with a small force could hold the cork in its place. This struck me as being very expressive of his position, particularly when I saw the hasty sketch which General Barnard had drawn, and in making my subsequent report I used that expression without adding quotation marks, never thinking that anything had been said that would attract attention, as this did very much to the annoyance, no doubt, of General Butler, and, I know, very much to my own. I found afterwards that this was mentioned in the notes of General Bado's book, which, when they were shown to me, I asked to have stricken out, yet it was retained there, though against my wishes. I make this statement here because, although I have often made it before, it has never been in my power until now to place it where it will correct history and I desire to rectify all injustice that I may have done to individuals, particularly to officers who were gallantly serving their country during the trying period of the war for the preservation of the Union. General Butler certainly gave his very earnest support to the war, and he gave his own best efforts personally to the suppression of the rebellion. The further operations of the Army of the James can best be treated of in connection with those of the Army of the Potomac, the two being so intimately associated and connected as to be substantially one body in which the individuality of the supporting wing is merged. Before giving the reader a summary of Sherman's great Atlanta campaign, which must conclude my description of the various cooperative movements preparatory to proceeding with that of the operations of the center, I will briefly mention Sheridan's first raid upon Lee's communications which, though an incident of the operations on the main line and not specifically marked out in the original plan, attained in its brilliant execution and results all the proportions of an independent campaign. By thus anticipating, in point of time, I will be able to more perfectly observe the continuity of events occurring in my immediate front when, 
I shall have undertaken to describe our advance from the Rapidan. On the 8th of May, just after the Battle of the Wilderness, and when we were moving on Spotsylvania, I directed Sheridan verbally to cut loose from the Army of the Potomac, pass around the left of Lee's army, and attack his cavalry, to cut the two roads, one running west through Gordonsville, Charlottesville, and Lynchburg, the other to Richmond, and, when compelled to do so for want of forage and rations, to move on to the James River and draw these from Butler's supplies. This move took him past the entire rear of Lee's army. These orders were also given in writing through Meade. The object of this move was threefold. First, if successfully executed, and it was, he would annoy the enemy by cutting his line of supplies and telegraphic communications and destroy, or get for his own use, supplies in store in the rear and coming up. Second, he would draw the enemy's cavalry after him and thus better protect our flanks, rear, and trains than by remaining with the army. Third, his absence would save the trains drawing his forage and other supplies from Fredericksburg, which had now become our base. He started at daylight the next morning and accomplished more than was expected. It was sixteen days before he got back to the Army of the Potomac. The course Sheridan took was directly to Richmond. Before night, Stuart, commanding the Confederate cavalry, came on to the rear of his command, but the advance kept on, crossed the North Anna, and at Beaver Dam, a station on the Virginia Central Railroad, recaptured four hundred Union prisoners on their way to Richmond, destroyed the road, and used and destroyed a large amount of subsistence and medical stores. Stuart, seeing that our cavalry was pushing towards Richmond, abandoned the pursuit on the morning of the 10th and, by a detour and an exhausting march, interposed between Sheridan and Richmond at Yellow Tavern, only about six miles north of the city. Sheridan destroyed the railroad and more supplies at Ashland, and on the 11th arrived in Stuart's front. A severe engagement ensued, in which the losses were heavy on both sides, but the rebels were beaten, their leader mortally wounded, and some guns and many prisoners were captured. Sheridan passed through the outer defenses of Richmond, and could, no doubt, have passed through the inner ones. But having no supports near, he could not have remained. After caring for his wounded, he struck for the James River below the city, to communicate with Butler and to rest his men and horses, as well as to get food and forage for them. He moved first between the Chickahominy and the James, but in the morning, the 12th, he was stopped by batteries at Mechanicsville. He then turned to cross to the north side of the Chickahominy by Meadow Bridge. He found this barred, and the defeated Confederate cavalry, reorganized, occupying the opposite side. 
the panic created by his first entrance within the outer works of richmond having subsided troops were sent out to attack his rear he was now in a perilous position one from which but few generals could have extricated themselves the defenses of richmond manned were to the right the chickahominy was to the left with no bridge remaining and the opposite bank guarded to the rear was a force from richmond this force was attacked and beaten by wilson's and gregg's divisions while sheridan turned to the left with the remaining division and hastily built a bridge over the chickahominy under the fire of the enemy forced a crossing and soon dispersed the confederates he found there the enemy was held back from the stream by the fire of the troops not engaged in bridge building on the thirteenth sheridan was at bottoms bridge over the chickahominy on the fourteenth he crossed this stream and on that day went into camp on the james river at hawksell's landing he at once put himself into communication with general butler who directed all the supplies he wanted to be furnished sheridan had left the army of the potomac at spotsylvania but did not know where either this or lee's army was now great caution therefore had to be exercised in getting back on the seventeenth after resting his command for three days he started on his return he moved by the way of white house the bridge over the pamunkey had been burned by the enemy but a new one was speedily improvised and the cavalry crossed over it on the twenty-second he was at aylets on the metapony where he learned the position of the two armies on the twenty-fourth he joined us on the march from north anna to cold harbor in the vicinity of chesterfield sheridan in this memorable raid passed entirely around lee's army encountered his cavalry in four engagements and defeated them in all recaptured four hundred union prisoners and killed and captured many of the enemy destroyed and used many supplies and munitions of war destroyed miles of railroad and telegraph and freed us from annoyance by the cavalry of the enemy for more than two weeks end of section forty eight recording by jim clevenger little rock arkansas jim at j o c c l e v dot com